Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're talking to journalist Oliver Millman about his new book, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. Oliver, who is the environment correspondent on the Guardian newspaper, addresses the shocking decrease in the number of insects in the world. He outlines the overall importance of insects from the pollination of plants to their vital role in the food chain and describes how bees, butterflies and countless other insects are simply disappearing. Welcome, Oliver. Hi, Richard. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Um, so the book, it is it is downbeat. And your your opening chapter, you take a dystopian view of the future of what the world could look like without insects. So my first question is, wh why isn't this environmental crisis being more widely discussed? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, I think to my mind, having kind of covered this area for a few years now, I, I didn't really think about insects and then being in trouble up to a, a couple of years ago. I think like many of us, I was kind of entranced by um, the bigger, more glamorous uh, conservation issues of our times, thinking about rhinos and lions and orangutans, the Amazon rainforest, you know, these big kind of iconic things we think about as being in danger and uh, that we need to act to save. But it became clear um, around kind of 2017, 2018, there were these uh, series of studies showing that um, the insect world was in far greater danger than we had previously thought. Um, and uh, scientists are now quite clear that there's widespread declines going on um, and that they, these declines have profound consequences for us all in, in a number of ways. I mean, I think one of the reasons why um, we've been slow to latch on to this crisis is, firstly, I think insects have always seemed ubiquitous. Um, they, you know, you, you can walk outside and it seems like there's flies all around you. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, ladybugs here, they're all there, um, beetles scuttling around, bees and butterflies. Um, it's not like it feels like they're in short supply in, 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 our, in our kind of mind's eye, really. Um, and also we've had this kind of troubled relationship with insects. Um, you know, even our kind of lexicon we use around them is is kind of problematic to a good relationship, really. Uh, we talk about them as creepy crawlies, which is quite a rude term. We say that kind of annoying people are bugging us. We, we, we kind of have this kind of idea of them as pests, um, as these kind of unwanted creatures around us, even though they are the kind of closest creatures in our lives, really, other than our pets, perhaps. So, um, and some of that is is obviously um, justifiable to some extent when you think about the disease carried by uh, mosquitoes, um, our repellents towards certain insects such as cockroaches and so on. But um, we've we're coming from a poor starting point, I think, when it comes to addressing uh, the decline of insects because we we've had a very troubled history with them uh, and many of us dislike them instinctively so perhaps well butterflies and bees might be the two big name exceptions to that rule where we either don't notice them or intensely dislike them yeah that's right i mean i think you see a lot of kind of save the bees campaigns all around uh, the world now where 
people will happily kind of dress up as a bee and wave a placard um, to try and um, uh, get some kind of beneficial environmental outcome. I think we kind of realise that bees are, are useful and uh, it'd be good to have them around. Butterflies, of course, are, are beautiful uh, and, and seem kind of non-threatening to us. Um, so we kind of have fond feelings about them. But there, I mean, there are a million named species of insects, three quarters of all the world's known life. Um, and there's far more out there that we don't know about, maybe five million species, maybe 10 million. Yeah. And so to think that we only think warmly about, you know, a handful of species at best out of one million, kind of think gives us a, gives us a kind of idea of our level of distaste for insects. And you speak to entomologists who do outreach for, at schools and they say, younger kids, you know, if you're in kindergarten, um, they love insects. They find them fascinating and cool and they've got these amazing abilities that um, children really like to learn about. But by the time they get to high school, um, there's this kind of uh, uh, disgust or um, distaste for them that um, has obviously been taught. It's a cultural thing. We, we're kind of brought up to dislike them. So um, getting around that, so I think um, one of the ma major kind of obstacles we face in trying to deal with these um, widespread losses of insects. It's funny, if you think of uh, children's books, Roald Dahl, James and the Giant Peach, that's filled with insects. And also Charlotte's Web, of course. Um, yeah, maybe something happens yeah. between children and adulthood. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember as a kid kind of turning over rocks and logs and poking around there and looking for ad ants and the kind of tunnels they build and earwigs and um, you know spiders they're not insects of course but um, looking at them and being kind of fascinated by them and like you say literature does kind of pick up that kind of childlike delight about insects at some time at some points but um, yeah I think that is almost a part of growing up is that we become distanced from them except for the real kind of insect fanatics there are out there of course right so in the book you you quote and, and uh, reference multiple studies around the world revealing declines in particular types of insects or insects in a particular area um, but there's one test that re really stood out to me and it's about um, the the number of squashed bugs or insects that appear on your car window shield window screen after a drive and it seems like such an anecdotal way of measuring it but when I thought about it when I start, I'm 53 now, when I started driving at 18, I remember driving all around the country at weekends, and my car would just be covered in squashed insects. And I honestly can't remember the last time I cleaned my car recently with insects on the front. It, it might be really, you, you might have really hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's become this kind of shorthand thing that a lot of us can grasp, but obviously not many of us are looking through the scientific literature to, to look at all the studies being done on insect declines, but I think many of us can think about, you know, um, bugs on the windscreen just aren't a thing anymore. Um, and, you know, you go outside and sit under a, a light at night and, you know, insects buzzing around the light outside just isn't a thing that happens as much as it once did. Uh, if you're of a certain age, of course, younger people might think that's normal. But yeah, it kind of became clear to me when writing the book that I had the same experiences. Like I, I was driving around Montana um, last year, which is kind of one of the least populated states in the US, kind of 
wide open spaces you'd think there should be lots of insects around I, I was driving for a whole week and didn't have a single insect smash against the windscreen which is kind of amazing when you think about it there is this one scientist who decided to turn that anecdote into hard data this guy called Anders Papimola who I, I tell his story in the book and he grew up in um, Denmark uh, and noticed that the, the countryside of his youth seemed to be kind of changing there are fewer birds around and he thought it might be related to the fact that there are fewer insects around so what he started doing this rather eccentric experiment whereby he um, he got an old beat up 1960s Ford Anglia um, and started driving it up and down the same stretch of road in Denmark and he's been doing that every summer since 1997 um, he gets up to about 30 40 miles an hour and um, waits for the insects to hit its windscreen and then counts them at the at the end I mean what he's found in uh, since that time is incredible it's been a 97 percent decline in insects um, hitting his windscreen since 97 so there is actually some data around uh, around this phenomenon it's not just our imaginations um, it, it actually is fact and I mean those those kind of declines are just incredible almost a complete wipeout of insects in the seemingly kind of benign stable part of Denmark this wasn't you know some industrial area or war zone or anything like that it was kind of some quite quiet piece of countryside in um, in Denmark and you've seen these huge declines so yeah it's it's real it's not it's not an um it's not just in our imaginations it's um it seems to be actually happening so what's what's causing the decline um I, I guess from the content you covered in the book that it's going to be a combination of factors yeah, that's right. So scientists kind of blame three main things, really. So you've got habitat loss. I mean, we've chopped down about um, a quarter of all the trees that covered the worlds uh, since the industri uh, industrial era began. Um, so we've got rid of a lot of kind of insect-rich habitat, the forests, the grassland, the kind of wildfire meadows. Um, so that's been disastrous for them. We've also doused the land in chemicals that's the other big thing uh, so pesticides particularly in insecticides of course have been deadly for insects they wipe out not just the pests but everything else that they feed on the pests or might be just passing by or the bees and beetles and butterflies and so on um, and that's been done on kind of monocultural farming plots of land where just single crops are there to be um, doused insecticide and provides no food, no shelter, a very poisonous environment for insects. And the third thing, of course, is climate change. Um, insects can't really escape climate change. They, they can't travel very far unless you're maybe a, a dragonfly or a monarch butterfly or something that does these kind of epic migrations. Um, you, you kind of stuck to the same kind of spot that you, you always were, your species always was. And, um, and so by kind of cranking up the temperature, we are making life very inhospitable for them. We're also scrambling the seasons, of course. I mean, in some parts of the US, spring is arriving 20 days earlier than it once did. So that whole interaction of uh, natural processes involving the flowering of plants, and the arrival of insects, and then the arrival of birds to eat those insects is all being you know, thrown off kilter. So uh, those are the main things. There are other things such as light pollution, uh, we've lit up the night sky and uh, 
uh, affected insects that communicate and and use um, signals at night or the the onset of night to to mate and find food. Fireflies are a good example of those of that. So we've done a lot of things really to make um, life quite miserable for insects. Those are three really big areas. Um, and if you you just consider deforestation, which is I think usually being forest land being turned into uh, agricultural land um that's a huge area a huge a huge subject with all sorts of people wishing to um discuss it or, or what um including you know, where people would argue for it where they there are more 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 mouths to feed around the world but um I rarely hear insects being discussed in climate change or uh, people more worried about the effect of pesticides on humans. So it might be coming back to that first point that insects are not loved and widely considered. Yeah, I mean, that that's right. I mean, if, I think ultimately when, you know, we're thinking about solutions to this, um, we're going to do things that we feel are going to benefit us or creatures we love more than insects and the insects will be the co-beneficiaries of that um, i mean obviously lots of people like to protect forests they don't know the idea of noxious chemicals over their food uh, obviously climate change is a, a thing to fight on for many different reasons um, other than insects um, but if we do those things for to save ourselves we can um, we can help insects along the way and and that in itself will save us because Ultimately, I feel my book is about insect conservation, but it's um, about human conservation too, because we we rely so heavily upon them. So um, there's very good reasons to save them, other than um, just because we intrinsically they intrinsically deserve to be around, and and we find them beautiful. We actually need them. So some of those reasons would be pollination. Um, they help help degrade natural materials. I mean, you, you use the example of how a dead body, uh, how insects um, reduce a dead body down to uh, finer organic material. Uh, what would be some of the other other ways they help us? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they do this, that, this kind of grim kind of background, unheralded work that we don't really think about, but we take for granted, such as, yeah, like you say, breaking down feces, breaking down dead bodies. One researcher said to me, um, without insects would be living in a world of poop with dead uncle jeremy floating on by because this kind of rotten material wouldn't be um uh, broken down by beetles and blowflies and other other insects before bacteria got to it so that process of course tidies up our environments um but it also uh, helps the flow of nutrients so once um, uh, these things are broken down the, the nutrients can cycle through soils and through plants so therefore replenishing uh, forests and grasslands and other other kind of landscapes um, so that's that's really important. It's important for the health of our entire environment. Um, uh, pollination, like you say, uh, you know, a third of the food we eat is pollinated by insects. Um, we wouldn't have kind of apples, cranberries, uh, melons, broccoli, blueberries, cherries. I mean, the, the list goes on and on without them. No, no kind of uh, main spices either, or even chocolate, because chocolate is dependent on this tiny midge crawling into the cacao plant to pollinate it. So we wouldn't have many of the really healthy, uh, nutritious things, many of the delicious things in our in, in our world in terms of food to eat. 
um, and uh, lots of other animals would suffer too. I mean, we're already seeing we're already seeing bird numbers decline in parts of Europe and North America. Uh, even in the heart of the Amazon rainforest, they're saying that insect-eating birds are are declining much more quickly than omnivorous birds because they just have uh, so little to eat. So you're seeing these kind of cascading problems throughout the food chain. Uh, once insects aren't there, it kind of destabilizes um, much of the world around us without them. Right. You write extensively about bees. Now, the decline in bees is uh, easier to measure because they're almost semi-domesticated, farmed in, in hives uh, for honey. Why are they so important to us? Well, yeah, honeybees are, like you say, they're almost like an agri agricultural input, like a, pea, uh, like a pig or a cow or a, um, a tractor. This kind of idea of being a beekeeper has very much changed from what it once was. It used to be a kind of a sideline hobby. You could keep a couple of hives and create some honey and you can smear on your toast and, and there'll be a kind of nice thing to do on the side. But now beekeeping is this kind of contracted business, certainly in the US, whereby you have to um, strap your uh, beehives onto trucks and send them all around the country to keep the food system operating essentially by pollinating crops all around the country because the volume of food we want to produce um, cannot be done by wild bees because wild bees are not numerous enough such as bumblebees uh, and they're suffering badly because of pesticide use and habitat loss and all these other kind of um, uh, impacts so you've got this kind of mad kind of uh, industry based around honeybee uh, transfer and um, contracted work. I mean, I went to California for the book and I discovered this kind of entire um, scaffolding of, uh, of work going on there, matching up beekeepers with uh, farmers. There's these people who work as bee brokers, which is a job I didn't even know existed. Um, but this one woman who was a bee broker I, I spoke to, she can and enough money in kind of two months of the year just to play golf the rest of the year um, because she's earned enough money from matching up beekeepers and farmers. Uh, and the farmers are just desperate for pollination and the beekeepers are desperately trying to keep um, numbers up because they're being ravaged by disease and uh, chemicals and many other things. So, yeah, we're on this kind of very kind of stretched, kind of perilous um, system uh, of pollination that relies heavily on relies heavy on honeybees uh, of course wild bees don't have the protection of beekeepers um, and they're, they're kind of suffering in kind of silence in the background really um, which again is worrying because they are they are so important to us for for many reasons so are um in the short term in the immediate future what what changes can we expect to see and also is anyone taking any action any governments or bodies taking action to halt this decline yeah they are they are if you look at the european union they've banned three of the main neonicotinoids which are the, this kind of class of pesticide which are the kind of most deadly for uh, insects um germany has done some kind of good work on um, light pollution banning um, leaf lowers because um you know getting rid of piles of leaves is actually bad for insects because they like to shelter there um, and there's lots of kind of groups if you think about North America lots of groups doing work to 
say the species such as the modern butterfly by planting milkweed kind of breeding them um so there are there is work being done um uh it's not really at the scale of what we need unfortunately um we need kind of kind of broad change in policy around farming practices and pesticide use and obviously action on climate change but also culturally we need to we need to think about how we operate i mean we value things that are actually very harmful for insects we like tidy ordered environments around us where everything has its place i mean we we call things a weed which is just a plant in the wrong place um a weed to an insect is uh, important food and shelter um, we've kind of tidied up our environments and pushed nature away from us as much as possible um in a way that's hugely detrimental to insects insects like a kind of a jumble of plants kind of uh, scruffy vegetation that's why you see them by the side of roads or railway tracks or in abandoned kind of buildings when the weeds sprout everywhere they like that kind of chaos and disorder and we don't so i mean as long as we have that mismatch um uh, we're going to be running into uh, running into conflict with them unfortunately so a manicured lawn is bad but a natural back garden with wildflowers is a good thing yeah yeah that's right i mean we i think again culturally we've come to value the idea of this kind of manicured lawn it's the kind of sign of success it's been sold as the kind of american dream as well um you know living in suburbia with a two-car garage and a manicured lawn but it's, it's actually a desert for insects there's nothing really there for them um and i think i think you know from a certain point of view it could actually be quite boring i mean i think our wildflowers uh are, are far more interesting um let the grass grow a little bit you just see a bit more life a bit more color when you go into environments that haven't been cut down you know treated with lots of chemicals it's a completely different experience you know you have bugs hitting against your legs and your face the whole place is kind of thrumming with life you can see them you can hear them it's a kind of far more vibrant and colorful um place to be and i think that's what we should be aiming for at least in parts of the world we should be we should be aiming to bring back some of that kind of vibrancy and color to our lives okay so where do you think we're going to be in 50 years time um i mean it depends if we do something about this really um i mean there's already been warnings from the united nations that the world faces a food security issue because of the decline in pollination so obviously the world's population is growing you might get to kind of 10 billion people by the midpoint of the century and if pollination uh, continues to drop off because of lack of insects we're going to see mass malnutrition i mean there's one study that um, estimated that we could be heading for a million extra deaths a year around the world because of heart disease and other conditions that come from a lack of nutrition from pollinated foods so there's a food security issue um, we're going to have this kind of horrible choice of whether we you know uh, try to create more food by clearing rainforest uh, and other forests to create more farmland which would you know just compound the environmental uh, damage uh, and harm to species including insects or whether we more intensively farm the land we have which again would be detrimental to them 
or if we start looking at alternatives around regenerative farming, uh, you know, indoor farming, you've got these shipping containers, we can do it soilless with hydroponics. Um, you know, technology may come along and save us in some respects, but um, uh, we're heading for we're heading for a kind of crunch point, I think, unless we uh, we change our ways. Okay. Um, yeah, it doesn't sound too hopeful. Let's hope things change. Um, all right, Oliver. My final question, which we ask to all our guests, is: What book or books are you currently reading? Oh, I've been reading a lot of environmental books recently, just because that's my area and my interest, I suppose. So I'm currently reading *Entangled Life* by Merlin Sheldrake. It's about fungi and where they come from. I've also been really interested in this kind of emerging area of climate fiction, science fiction, or cli-fi. So um, I just finished Weather, the novel by Jenny Offal. Um, but I've been reading some some non-climate environmental books too, just to be a bit more cheery. <laughs> so Exciting <laughs> Times by um, Nisha Dolan. I just finished uh, Clara and the Sun I read as well recently. So yeah, in between it all, I managed to manage fit in a few books. Yeah. I actually read somewhere the other day that someone was saying that we are in a golden age for environmental and nature writing at the moment with not necessarily people who are, well, yeah, people who are highlighting problems, um, say environments or animals or species that need protecting. But there's so many great writers that have been putting books together in the last 20 years. I mean, Robert McFarlane jumps to mind immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Robert McFarlane, Elizabeth Colbert, um, uh, David Wallace Wells. Um, and yeah, this Lydia Millet as well, there's this kind of range of writing now where it's not just kind of dry scientific language or, or you know, very kind of standard um, kind of warnings or scientific uh, sort of approach. You kind of it's blossomed this whole area, I feel, into, you know, really great storytelling, um, showing how these issues affect different areas of our lives. I mean, I think it's, yeah, I'd, I'd agree it's certainly a golden age. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay, that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you to journalist Oliver Millman, who is the author of The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. Thanks so much. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening. My name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.